Is that all right, Brian? All right. They like to sabotage me before I get started always with something. So you're on to them, Mr. Brooks. Um, Y'all remember, um, we're having a, we're going through the Old Testament with um, looking at the things that I call uh, uh, an interpretive triad. So we're looking at these Old Testament books historically, literarily, and theologically. So we're just going to look at the books of Joshua and Judges tonight under those three categories. So let's uh, begin by looking at the book of Joshua in historical perspective. So first question I want to address is, well, Uh, Who do we think wrote uh, the book of Joshua? Is there anything that we can learn about the author of that? Well, uh, we're not told in the book itself who actually wrote Joshua, so it's technically uh, anonymous. We do have some ancient traditions that weigh in on this question and tell us uh, what they think about who wrote the book of Joshua. Uh, For example, this uh, Hebrew work called the Talmud, which... Uh, is dated to about the year 500 A.D., claims that Joshua himself wrote the, wrote the book of Joshua. So um, they think the figure that um, we're reading about in Joshua is actually the person who wrote it. Well, the Talmud, like I said, comes from A.D. 500, and that's approximately um, 1,700 years after uh, we think that book was actually written. So um, while it's weighing in, uh, it is a long time after after the fact, so we do have to weigh what it's saying. Um, Interestingly enough, in favor of that, there is evidence of Joshua writing within the book. So let's look at uh, Joshua chapter 8, verse 32. That verse reads, And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he, that's Joshua, wrote on stones a copy of the Mosaic Law, which he had written. We have another verse, Joshua 24, 26, which reads, And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And so here we actually have him uh, writing things uh, in the book of the law of God, which we assume was handed down from Moses. So we actually see Joshua writing in that. Um, Now, it's possible that what we, some of these things that we see uh, being written in Joshua is actually passed down to us in the book that we read in our Bibles, in the book of Joshua. Um, But we don't know that for sure. Um, We can say, if we read the entire book of Joshua, that in a manner similar to the Pentateuch, uh, if Joshua did write it, he certainly didn't write all of it. Uh, Let's look at uh, Joshua chapter 24, verses 29 through 30. So these verses say, After these things Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old, and they buried him in his own inheritance in Timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And so here we see a reference to Joshua, the main figure in the book, actually dying in the book. And so uh, certainly we wouldn't expect him to be the author of at least this portion. Uh, We have another portion uh, in Joshua chapter 4, verses 14. This verse says, On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. And they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses. And then here's the important part, all the days of his life. And so here, the author of Joshua is actually reflecting back on the life of Joshua and uh, reflecting back how all of Israel stood in awe of him. So certainly it doesn't seem like jo- the historical figure of Joshua would be responsible for this uh, verse either. And so um, what we kind of see is that um, we have a situation arising that's 
uh, a little bit, um, let's look at uh, one more thing. I'm leaving out some things here. Um, there are, uh, in addition to this, there are a number of statements that include something like uh, a phrase like, to this day. So they'll be talking about something and they'll say, well, it was this way all the way up until this day, meaning that the author, the time of the author uh, who wrote this book. So let's look at uh, Joshua chapter 4, verse 9. It says, And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan in, place, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. Let's look at Joshua chapter 8, verse 28. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is so to this day. So it would certainly seem that um, when we're talking about a phrase like, to this day, that there's a great deal of time that has passed by, right? I mean, that statement's most to, uh, supposed to make us recognize, yeah, this has been this way for a long time, ever since these things happened. It's still that way to this time. So we wouldn't expect uh, these statements to have written, written too far after they, uh, after they had occurred. So uh, with the book of Joshua, it's possible that we have a situation arising, kind of like I argued for the Pentateuch, where maybe Joshua, the historical figure in the book, was responsible for writing down a, a lot of the information within the book and probably a lot of the uh, information that just he would have had uh, um, available to him. We can probably trace back to him. But probably what's happened uh, at some point is somebody else a little bit later than Joshua has taken all that material and kind of compiled it all together and kind of put it within a, within a larger narrative. Um, and so that's kind of what I think um, happened with the book of Joshua. I think some of the things can probably be traced back to him. But overall, we're looking at somebody a, a little bit later than Joshua is actually being the author of the book that we see, um, that we see in our Bibles. Um, ultimately, we can't be really sure anyway. Um, unlike the Pentateuch, we don't have a lot of references to the book of Joshua um, as uh, with him being the author of the book, like in the case for Moses with the Pentateuch. So, um, even though we uh, can't narrow down uh, who wrote it, can we narrow down when the book was written? Well, there are several statements that uh, indicate that the book of Joshua was written before the time of King David. Um, there's a reference uh, to a city named Sidon that we read in Joshua, which is actually later on in about the year 1200 B.C. Um, instead of being called Sidon, it no longer is called by that name. It's called by the city of Tyre. And so we read about that in other places uh, in the Old Testament. And that transition happened about the year 1200 B.C., so really long time ago. Well, actually in the book of Joshua, we see... Uh, this particular city being referred to as Sidon. So um, Joshua 11:8, And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon. And so this would certainly indicate that this material goes back um, maybe to the year 1200 B.C. or a little bit after that, whenever this transition started to happen. We also have a, a reference to um, the Jebusites, um, who were remaining in Jerusalem, uh, the book of Joshua says they remain there until this day. So Joshua 15, uh, verse 36 reads, But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Well, 
interestingly about this is that we actually see an account in the book of 2 Samuel of when David was actually able to drive the Jebusites out of Jerusalem. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 5 verses 6, six through 7 says, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You cannot come in here, but the blind and the lame and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And so uh, we certainly think that um, whenever this book was written, we think it was probably written before this actually uh, took place, because the thing is, if David had already uh, gone into Jerusalem and captured it, well, then the author of Joshua couldn't rightly say, well, the Jebusites are there to this day, right? It wouldn't be true, right? And he would have changed something at that point. So um, we think there, I think there's probably a good uh, chance that the book of Joshua is written uh, before um, the time of King David, probably at some point during the Judges, uh, I think probably around the year 1200 B.C. So how does this uh, information actually help us interpret the book of Joshua, though? Well, the key issue, I think, uh, for dating um, the book of Joshua is uh, understanding the leadership situation that would have been going on at that time. Uh, in a little bit, we're going to be studying the book of Judges, which would be covering the period which I'm suggesting, suggesting the book of Joshua was written. And one thing that we know for sure about the time of the Judges is that it was a time of very inconsistent leadership within the nation of Israel. And so what I think uh, is going on is that uh, this historical context, what we can gather from when the book was written, is leading me to believe that the author is probably looking at the figure of Joshua in the book of Joshua and saying, Judges, here is your example of how to be a godly leader in the nation of Israel. Joshua, this man is a good leader, and you need to aspire after his leadership. I think this is confirmed if we trace how a certain title is used in the book of Joshua. Let's look at uh, Joshua chapter 1, verse 1, very first book, verse of the book. This verse says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. Well, interestingly enough, we don't see that title applied to the person Joshua uh, at that point. We don't see it applied to him at any other point in the book until we get to the very end of Joshua, Joshua 24, 29. That verse reads, after these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being a hundred and ten years old. And so I think um, one of the things that the author is bringing to our attention is that during Joshua's, uh, during the time that he was leader, um, he became so popular, he began to take on the same title that Moses took on. Uh, he began to take on this title of the servant of the Lord. Uh, which would indicate he was, uh, he was seen as a good leader among the people of Israel. This, I think, is confirmed But if we look at Joshua chapter 3, verse 7. That verse says, The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you, that's Joshua he's speaking to, in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. So we see Joshua is kind of being a, a idealized as a character, as a, a model leader for future leaders to follow. There's two other things I want you to take note about this. I think they're very important things for us to keep in mind as we're reading the book of Joshua. And that is, one, although we uh, see Joshua being presented as this ideal leader for the people of Israel, 
We need to remember that in the book of Joshua, we see Joshua leading Israel through crisis uh, with this character known as Achan that we're going to hear a little bit more about in a minute, uh, who rebelled against uh, the command of the Lord and uh, took the things that were devoted to destruction. And uh, uh, the Lord says uh, because of that, because of Achan's actions, when the people went out to uh, capture this this city that they were trying to go capture, that the Lord didn't give it into them hands, their hands, and they, just suffer, they suffered this awful defeat at the hands of their enemies, all because of this man, Achan. And Joshua is the one that had to lead them out of this struggle. Two, uh, oh, well, not two yet, but um, we also see Joshua leading through his own mistakes. We're going to learn about uh, something called the Gibeonite uh, deception uh, that happened in the book of Joshua, this group um, who was in the promised land uh, realized what was happening. They realized that the Israelites were taking over the land, and they, they go, you're probably aware of the story, they come to the Israelites and say, we're from a faraway country, even though they were really just from the next valley over. And they say, see, our, our bread's old, our, our, t- our animals are tired and wore out, and we just came here just to make a peace treaty with you. And Joshua makes a mistake, doesn't he? He doesn't consult with the Lord, and he makes a peace treaty with these group based on their deception. And it was a mistake, right? But we see in the book of Joshua that uh, Joshua leads the people uh, through this mistake, and the Gideonite deception actually becomes a further opportunity for Joshua to lead the people of Israel in capturing the lamb. So we, even though we see an idealized form of Joshua, everything's not rosy and perfect. Joshua leads the people of Israel through crisis. He, he uh, leads them through his own mistakes. Uh, second thing that I want us to see is um, just that, uh, well, I think it's the two main things. It's just that uh, Joshua's leading in those, um, those two instances are, are uh, part of how he is characterized as a leader in Israel. So you don't have to be perfect in order to be a good leader. Part of Joshua's success as Israel's leader stems from his actions when Israel as a nation had gone astray and even when he himself had gone astray. Part of leading like Joshua is learning to repent like Joshua. Um, Also, we see that although Joshua is uh, idealized as a leader, his success ultimately stems from God. Let's look at uh, Joshua chapter 6, verse 27. This verse reads, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. And so even though Joshua was a very successful leader, Uh, As we're reading the book, we should be very aware that his success as a leader of God's people ultimately stems from God. Let's transition now and look at uh, the book of Joshua in a literary uh, perspective. Uh, What was the author's plan for putting his book together and and writing this book? Well, uh, as we begin to read the book of Joshua, what we encounter is four subsections in the book. Um, based on the major movements that occur within the narrative in Joshua. And um, I think this can be helpfully summarized if we consider uh, four words, the word cross, the word take, the word divide, and the word serve. So in Joshua chapters 1 through 5, we see how Israel crosses over the Jordan and enters into the promised land for the first time. This is actually described in a way that's very similar to how Israel crossed uh, the Red Sea when they were fleeing from Pharaoh. Um, After Joshua, uh, before Joshua actually crosses the Red Sea with the people, he sends two spies to investigate the land of Israel. This probably is 
uh, reflecting upon the two spies who brought back a positive report when Moses sent out 12 spies totally, only sends two now, uh, representing the two spies that brought back a positive report. Um, after crossing uh, the Jordan River, God's, God commands Je uh, Israel to observe uh, a, a rite known as circumcision, which identifies the Israelites as the people of God, and he commands them to observe Passover, which they apparently hadn't been doing as much as they should have while they were uh, wandering in the, in the wilderness. In Joshua chapters 6 through 12, we read about how Israel took the promised land. So we read about how God collapses the walls at the city of Jericho after having the people of Israel march around the uh, around the city and not raising any kind of um, battle or siege works against the city. All they do is march around it, right? And uh, they blow their trumpets uh, during the last time that they did this, and God causes the walls of Jericho to, to, to crash down. Uh, from that point, we actually see Israel uh, going on to capture the area of southern Canaan, the southern part of the Promised Land, and then they start moving into the northern part of the Promised Land. Um, we also read about the sin of Achan and his stoning, right? So Achan, um, when, uh, when the people took over Jericho, God instructs them, I don't want y'all to keep anything. I don't want you to keep any gold or silver or people or animals or nothing. You're to take no uh, plunder for yourselves uh, when the city is defeated. Well, a man named Achan actually sees some gold and silver um, that was apparently very precious to him, and he coveted them in his heart, and he uh, decided to disobey the uh, God on that. And uh, then, as I said, the next battle against a little town called Ai, Israel's defeated, they're beaten back, and Joshua uh, has to investigate and find out that it was Achan, and uh, then the end result being that Achan and all of his family are taken into this valley, and they're stoned to death by the people of Israel. Uh, we also read about the Gideonite dece deception, which I de described to you a little bit earlier. And the interesting part about that is it actually becomes uh, another way that God decides to hand the land over to the people of Israel. In Joshua chapters 13 through uh, 21, we read about how Joshua was responsible for dividing the land. Now, uh, it, uh, if you're like me, I, I like to... I like to read through my Bible on a, a yearly basis. I think that's a very, uh, very helpful practice uh, uh, to keep me, uh, to keep me in the Word of God and to keep me in a broad section of it. Well, uh, if you're in the habit habit of doing that, one thing that you'll probably realize is that when you get to this sec section of Joshua, everything just is going along so at such a quick pace, and then it just you, it's like hitting a brick wall, right? For for us as modern readers, this is really, really, really tough material to get into. It's like hitting the book of Leviticus the first time you're trying to read through the Bible uh, in a year. It's just you get to it and you're just like, man, I, I don't get this. Well, uh, we might not uh, be able to understand the significance of this part as a uh, as a modern audience coming to the text, but I think if you were a, a member of uh, ancient Israel, this would probably be your favorite part of the Bible, and the reason is because this part of the Bible would be like taking inventory, right, of all the great things that God has done for you and your family, right? I mean, when we're seeing the land divided up among all the tribes of uh, tribes of Israel, 
this is just one reminder after another of everything that God has done for this people, right? And so this would probably be, in my opinion, probably their favorite part of the whole Testament. You know, this is, this is great. I mean, this is like Christmas morning uh, for ancient Israel. Well, in Joshua chapters 22 through 24, we start to wrap things up. We're reading about um, how, how Joshua continued to serve the people of Israel towards his, uh, towards his last days. We read about how um, Joshua dismisses what's known as the Transjordan tribes. We're going to learn a little bit more about them in a moment. Uh, there's a nearly a civil war over a monument that these Transjordan tribes built when they crossed back over the Jordan River. Um, and then uh, we also read about Joshua's final testament to Israel. So he, gives, he gathers the people of Israel together and gives them this final speech uh, before uh, before he dies, this is where we read these famous lines uh, uh, in the book of Joshua. They come from Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. These lines go, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of the, your fathers your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's fantastic, right? What a great verse to, to build a family around. Unfortunately... We also continue to read uh, some more words that Joshua uh, had to say about Israel. In, Joshua's, in Joshua 24, 18 through 20, um, we read, uh, the, and the people said, uh, therefore, we will serve the Lord. They're responding to this challenge that Joshua has given them. Therefore, we will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people of Israel, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. And so Joshua is probably thinking back to when he was a, a very young man at the mountain of Sinai. And he's thinking, uh-huh, I, I've heard this from your mouths before. In one breath you say, We will serve the Lord, for he is our God. And in the next breath, uh, on that occasion at Mount Sinai, it was get up Aaron make us some false gods to worship and Joshua's just thinking uh, I'm probably not going to be around to see the next thing that y'all say but uh, I'm going to go ahead and assume it's probably not going to be going to be good so uh, we kind of are ending the book of Joshua on a little bit of a, a foreboding note there uh, the J book of Joshua actually ends uh, by recording uh, the burials of three men so we might actually think that that kind of is a negative uh, note to end the book on uh, we read about the burial of Joshua. We read about the burial of Joseph's bones, who's actually uh, a figure we read about in the end of book of uh, the end of book of the book of Genesis, right? And he requests that uh, the people of Israel, whenever they leave Egypt, that they take his remains and they bury him inside the Promised Land when they come here. So we actually see a, a fulfillment of that. Uh, of that request that uh, Joseph makes. And we also read about the burial of a, of a priest named Eleazar. Now again, we might think this is kind of a foreboding thing to end the book on, but it actually shows us uh, something very positive. If we can, can compare the end of Joshua to the end of the Pentateuch, we can actually see a lot happen, a lot has happened for the people of Israel that's very good, right? Who dies at the end of the Pentateuch? It's Moses, right? And the Bible tells us that Moses is buried by God, but he's buried on the other side of the Jordan River, right? He never crosses over into the promised land. Well, when we come to the end of the book of Joshua, we read about the burial of these three significant figures. 
and they're not buried outside of the land, but inside of the land, right? And so at the end of the book of Joshua, we actually see a lot of positive things as ha- things have happened for the people of Israel. They have moved in and taken possession of the promised land, and this is where their ancestors are being uh, buried at this point. So let's uh, transition now to think about the book of Joshua in theological perspective. There are uh, two things that I want us to focus on as we're thinking about this. Uh, First, I want us to see that Joshua is all about a historical fulfillment of the patriarchal promises. And then the second theological thing that I want us to think about is something that is known as the band or the devotion uh, to the Lord. We're going to consider that some. So uh, first thing is Joshua um, presents uh, the conquest, Israel's entering and taking of the land as a fulfillment, a historical fulfillment of the patriarchal promises. We encountered the patriarchal promises last week. We first encountered them in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And I suggested that they could be summarized by the words posterity, relationship, and land. Well, the book of Joshua presents a historical fulfillment of these things. Uh, Specifically, he mostly focuses on the fulfillment of the land promise. Now, if you'll notice, uh, I keep referring to this as a historical fulfillment, okay? So why am I calling it historical? Well, at the uh, last time when we were talking about these promises uh, in the Pentateuch, I suggested that the author of the Pentateuch seemed to have more in mind than just a than just the land that Israel eventually began to conquer, right? He, he kind of has taken these patriarchal promises and using them uh, as a lens for which he can uh, view the entire future of God's people. And he's saying, Israel, you think these promises have been fulfilled, but there's a greater, more significant fulfillment uh, to come uh, in the days to come. Well, which is true, uh, that's how the Pentateuch presents these promises, but the book of Joshua, he's not contradicting the Pentateuch uh, by any means, but instead he's just kind of given a different focus. Uh, He's focusing on the historical fulfillment uh, of these patriarchal promises. A lot of verses actually state this very explicitly. Let's look at uh, Joshua chapter 11, verse 23. This verse says, So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Let's look at uh, the book of Joshua, chapter 21, verse 45. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So here we see all of the all that God had promised to the nation of Israel had come to pass. Um, so those are some explicit statements of these patriarchal promises being fulfilled in the conquest of the promised land. The book of Joshua also uh, contains a lot of implicit uh, things that lead us to believe that these promises are fulfilled. Uh, a couple minutes ago, I talked to you about the dismissal, dismissal of the Transjordan tribes. Well, What that's all about is way back in the book of Numbers, chapter 32, um, two and a half tribes of Israel come to Moses, who's leading the people of Israel at this point, and they're saying, you know, Moses, right now we're dwelling on the other side of the Jordan, but this land actually suits us just fine, and and we'd like to stay here. And Moses is at first taken aback, and he said, no, this is just because of your descent in your hearts. You don't think God can give us the promised land? They said, no, no, Moses, that's... That's not what this is about. We, 
we believe that he can and we will. We, we just like the, the, the land that we're dwelling in now. And they say, Moses, I tell you what, to, to prove it to you, we'll cross over with the other tribes of Israel and we'll actually help them conquer the promised land. And when everything's conquered, we'll come on back to this side of the Jordan land and we'll take our allotment from God uh, over on this side of the land. Well, we see the same thing in the book of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, Joshua is speaking to these Transjordan tribes, and he says, Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before the Lord, before your brothers, and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the Lord that of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan uh, toward sunrise. So we actually see the fulfillment of this in the later on in the book of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 22, verse 4, we see Joshua addressing these same tribes from, the, uh, from earlier in the book. And he says, And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he has promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land which, uh, in which your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. So we actually see uh, uh, Joshua is allowing, um, allowing these Transjordan tribes to, uh, to return to their land. He's telling them, Guys, the job's over. Y'all can go home and take this, take this other land. Um, uh, that that Moses had promised to. Uh, we also see a uh, we can also see a lot of implicit implications that the patriarchal promises are fulfilled in the way that Joshua describes uh, Israel's rest within the land. We've already seen this a couple time, uh, times, but let's look at a couple more. In Joshua chapter one verse thirteen, we read, "Remember the word." that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Uh, so this is the promise going at the outset of the uh, book of Joshua. Joshua is telling the, or God's telling the um, people of Israel that, uh, uh, that you're going to have rest in this land when everything's uh, done with. Well, by the end of the jo uh, book of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 23, uh, 21, verses uh, verse 44, we read, And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. And so, um, yeah, he, uh, that verse begins with, uh, jo uh, with them being given rest in the land. In Joshua chapter 23, verse 1, we read, And a long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years. And so we see uh, within the book of Joshua that this conquest of the, of the promised land is presented as complete. Uh, the people of Israel have been given rest uh, in the land. And so uh, this is all pointing to a fulfillment of the patriarchal promises. So what does that mean uh, mean for us? Well, uh, the great thing about this theological theme is that it teaches us that God can be trusted to fulfill what God promises he's going to do. We can trust God to fulfill his promises in our lives, right? 
Uh, I pulled a quote from a guy named uh, Martin Woodstra. I, I think this is a fantastic quote. It, uh, Woodstra says, in the present age of insecurity and fear, of staggering worldwide problems and challenges, the primary need is the, to stress the truth of the everlasting faithfulness of God as set forth in Joshua. This was, so we believe, the primary purpose of the book. Israel was yet to go through many perilous times. Enemy armies would sweep through the land. Apostasy would uh, often be rife. Yet to come would be devastation, deportation, and captivity. In those times, the faithful needed to know the joyful word of confidence and of hope that God remains loyal to the word once spoken. So the second thing I wanted us to look at, the second theological theme is uh, what's known as uh, as the ban. I'm going to have to really get uh, going through this part. So first of all, what is the, the ban? What am I talking about here? Well, another way it's often described is a devotion to destruction. So what this refers to is that when Israel would enter into a, a city when they were taking over the promised land, their instructions were to s- annihilate everybody that was living in the land at that time. Um, it refers to the total devastation of their enemies. Let's look at uh, Joshua chapter uh, 6, verse 17. Uh, we read there, And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. That's the ban. Only Rahab uh, the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers uh, whom were sent. And so this is the instructions God gave the people of Israel when they were coming in uh, to the city of Jericho. They, w- they were to take everything out. Uh, we're not going to read this for the sake of time, but we also see this in Joshua 10, verse 28. And in fact, if we were to read Joshua chapter 11 and chapter 12, we would see these instructions being given a total of nine times. So this brutality often causes major theological problems for people. I mean, how, how could God justify allowing Israel to overtake and destroy um, the people uh, that were dwelling in, in the land uh, in this way. It pose, often poses a serious problem for people considering the gospel for the first time. So this is very important for us to consider uh, theologically. Um, first of all, if we ever run into somebody who is aware of what the Old Testament says and is challenges us with these things, we need to have something, some kind of response to be able to give them. But I think more importantly is that studying this issue helps to helps us to understand the theology of the book of Joshua better and ultimately the theology of the whole testament better. So I want to offer you eight quick uh, proposals uh, that I'm pulling from a guy called Daniel Daniel Timmer that begins to kind of help us uh, think about this issue. So the first one is, uh, first, God is the owner of the land. Uh, In Joshua 1.3, we read, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. And so it's actually God who's the actual owner of this land, even though these uh, foreign nations were living in the promised land. Second, it is God's miraculous intervention, not Israel's military might that allows them to take over the promised land. And so we can't trace this just to the brutality of the nation of Israel. This is actually God acting in their favor. Third, we actually see that the violence uh, in the book of Joshua actually goes both ways. Uh, I have there for us to read uh, Joshua chapter 10, verse uh, 1 through 4. Um, we're not going to read that for the sake of time, but basically what these verses uh, 
uh, report is just this plan from these uh, tribes that are in the promised land and basically what they're doing is they're scheming to preemptively go and attack Israel, right? And so it's not like these, uh, these Transjordan or these, uh, these tribes in the promised land were, were uh, opposed to violence or anything. They were actually seeking to do the people of Israel uh, harm as well. Uh, fifth thing that I want us to look at is that some Canaanites do actually survive the invasion. Uh, we read about uh, Rahab and her family a, a few moments ago. Uh, earlier I told you about the, the Gibeonite uh, deception. That allowed them to survive Israel's conquering of the promised land. Um, as you continue to read on in the Bible, it's obvious that uh, some of the people of these cities actually just fled before the nation of Israel could get to them. And so the key for surviving uh, Israel, the Israelite conquest, uh, if you're one of these people, seems to be that you just have to acknowledge that God is giving this land to the people of Israel. And one, if you're willing to assimilate into Israelite culture, you're, uh, it seems like you're given a good opportunity to stay within the land or you're given the option to get out, right? Um, uh, let's see, seventh thing, or sixth thing that we need to realize about uh, when we're thinking about the ban is that Israel, uh, the nation of Israel, is actually subjected to the same brutality when they are disobedient to God, right? And so we have talked about a man, a figure named Achan, a couple of times already, right? And when he is, uh, when he rebels against what God has instructed him to do, he and his whole family, and the Bible even tells us all of his, all of his livestock are are stoned to death. And so Israel is, is, uh, isn't um, totally kept uh, from this judgment of God uh, uh, either. Um, we also, uh, one of the things that we encounter in the book of Joshua is that um, it seems like this uh, destruction of these uh, people who were living in the promised land was necessary to keep Israel devoted to God. And then finally, this conquest actually foreshadows God's uh, perfect judgment that we're going to see uh, uh, at the end of all things, right? At the end of all things, uh, Jesus is going to return and he is going to, to judge the nations, right? And those who have put their faith in him are, are going to be taken with him and everybody else is going to be uh, judged uh, in, in a manner similar, um, even worse uh, than what we see in the book of Joshua. And so what we actually see in the book of Joshua is actually a foreshadowing of this judgment to come. Um, I don't think that these eight things are totally going to solve all of our problems when we're thinking about the, the ban in Joshua. I mean, it's just a tough issue for, for Christians to learn to accept. But I, I hope that some of these eight things will kind of help give us a, some, um, begin. I hope they'll begin to kind of shift our, our, some of our patterns of thought so that we can actually understand uh, why the author of Joshua was okay with, uh, with what is being uh, written here. So uh, with that said, let's uh, move on to the book of Judges, and um, I'm going to try and get going through it uh, as quickly as I can. So the book of Judges and historical perspective. Well, who wrote the book of Judges, and when was it written? Well, just like the book of Joshua, the book of Judges is anonymous. We're not told who wrote it. Uh, in fact, we don't have any clues to tell us anything about uh, who wrote it, so we're not going to be able to put forth any kind of theory of who wrote the book of Judges. A couple of things that kind of can help us narrow down when the book of Judges might have been written, though. First thing is that the book of Judges in chapters 
in chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, actually quotes the end of the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 29 through 30. I have those uh, displayed up on the screen behind me, and you'll see except for just one or two differences, it looks like the book of Judges is actually quoting this earlier uh, book from Scripture. And so I said that the book of Joshua was written around the year 1200 B.C. Well, uh, we would obviously think, therefore, um, I think it is possible that Joshua is quoting Judges, but uh, for a lot of reasons I think that's probably not the case. It's probably... Uh, judges quoting uh, Joshua at this point so we can assume that the book of Judges was at least written after the year 1200 BC um, we see uh, we see uh, when we come to the end of Judges we see this repeated refrain that we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, in a couple minutes and the refrain is in those days there was no king in Israel everyone did what was right in his own eyes and so here um, this, this statement kind of leads us to believe, well, the book of Judges was probably written at some point after the nation of Israel started making uh, kings over them. So we're studying about this in the book of 1 Samuel. We haven't gotten to it yet, but in the book of 1 Samuel, we're learning about the first series of kings over the nation of Israel. The first one was Saul uh, in about, about the year 1000 B.C. And so we can probably at least assume that the book of Judges was written uh, at least that late, um, probably around the year 1000. And uh, this statement, in those days there was no king in, uh, in Israel, this would lead us to believe that he's viewing the monarchy as, as a good thing. And that actually narrows the time frame for when the book of Judges could be written to even a more narrow point, because he probably wouldn't have saw, uh, seen Saul as a good king in Israel's history. And after King Solomon... Uh, when we're in the book of Kings, we realize that Israel's monarchy actually uh, uh, falls off very, very quickly into sin. And so probably sometime during the reigns of King David and King Solomon is when the monarchy was at its strongest. And I think that's probably um, the dates that we should probably say uh, when the book of Judges was written. It's probably written sometime during the reigns of uh, King David or King Solomon. So uh, let's transition from there to uh, the book of Judges in a literary perspective. Um, the book begins with a prologue, which tries to link it to the book of Joshua. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty um, at the beginning of the book of Judges. The first verse reads, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired to the Lord, Who shall go up uh, first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Well, we're... Um, we're told in the book of Judges that this tribe called Judah is given the, the head role for going up uh, and leading the people of Israel. And this starts off good, but it devolves very, very quickly. We even read about this by the end of Judges, uh, the first chapter in the book of Judges, that this, um, this leadership of Judah doesn't last too long. And by the end of the very first chapter, we see all the 12 tribes of Israel almost acting like independent units, like they're not one nation uh, under God anymore. There, there are these 12 separate tribes who are all looking out for each other. And we see that this uh, lack of a national unity among them actually leads to a lack of an ability to follow God's covenant. Uh, the book concludes with two epilogues. And Judges chapter 17 through 18, we read about a guy called Micah who uh, has has um, come to be an idol worshiper um, in the land.
land of Israel. We read about Dan, one of the tribes of uh, Israel, coming in and uh, coming to this guy Micah and basically just uh, taking all of his land and his property and all of his all of his idols, right? And so uh, in this part of the epilogue, we're seeing a lot of injustice, but ironically, the injustice involves this one Israelite tribe taking another man's idols, right? And so this picture of just injustice, but taking idols and uh, as part of your injustice is just uh, just kind of showing that there's nothing going on right in the, uh, at the end of the book at the end of the book of Judges. Uh, and uh, the second epilogue we read about in chapters 19 through 21, uh, things just keep getting worse. So um, those chapters actually present the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, as actually uh, almost a new Sodom, right, that we read about that God destroyed in the Old Testament. Um, they, they act in similar ways as the people act in Sodom, and we actually see a civil war breaking out between, uh, between the tribes of Israel. So in between the, this prologue to the book of Judges and these two epilogues, uh, we encounter 12 judges, all right? So what are judges? Well, uh, typically a judge is... Um, seen as somebody who's make, making rulings based on law for the people. Well, in the book of uh, Judges, um, um, think it's a little bit different like, uh, than that. Uh, and judges in the book of Judges are typically understood to be military leaders. So um, these guys are Israel's military leaders. Um, in the book of Judges, we also see uh, this kind of pattern um, beginning to arise. We see ultimately there's uh, 12 judges that come up uh, during the book of Judges, and they all follow this uh, similar pattern. Uh, the pattern starts out uh, saying something like, the Israelites do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then the, uh, the cycle begins to come to the next phase, which is God punishes the Israelites. And then the next phase is that the Israelites repent. And then the next phase is God delivers them. And we wish that would be where the cycle would end, but course it's a cycle right so the people keep going right on and back uh, back around to eventually doing evil in the sight of of the Lord again and the whole cycle keeps going uh, going on uh, it's interesting to note that eventually this uh, this cycle actually breaks down in in the book of Judges we don't see every uh, aspect uh, of this cycle and sadly enough the element that more often than not goes missing is Israel's repentance right the people of Israel aren't even aware of their need to, uh, to repent of their sin. Uh, among the, um, also among these 12 judges that, um, that we see in the book of Judges, uh, among the major judges, there seems to be a discernible pattern from starting out fairly, as fairly good leaders, and then things throughout, as you move towards the end of the book, they keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse. So we start out with uh, judges called Athenel and Ehud and Shamgar, and these three guys seem like fairly good leaders over the people of Israel. But by the end of the book, the last two major judges are a guy named Jephthah and a guy named Samson. You're probably uh, aware of Samson. Well, these two judges are hardly uh, distinguishable from the actual Canaanites who they're leading the people of Israel against. So we, so we see this uh, steady negative progression um, in the book of Judges. Let's look at uh, the book of Judges in a theological perspective. There's uh, three things that I want us to, to cover here in the five minutes that I have left to cover it, which isn't good, but we'll, we'll give it a shot. 
Um, the first thing that I want us to see is the canonization of the people of Israel. Now, what exactly does that mean, the, the canonization of the people of Israel? Well, the Canaanites were the people who were dwelling in the promised land in the book of Joshua, right? And in Joshua, we read about the, the Canaanites being driven out of the land, right? Well, in the book of Judges, we start to see that Israel, who is now living in the land, essentially becomes indistinguishable from the tribes that were living there before, uh, before God had driven them out and given them the land. This is very clear if we look at the final two judges uh, that, that I mentioned a moment ago. Um, and uh, the, the final, uh, one of the final judges, his name is uh, Jephthah, and Jephthah actually, try, he tries to bribe God, right? You might remember this story. He, he's asked to lead the people of Israel, and uh, before leading the people of Israel into, into battle, he says, God, if you will give us victory over, the, over these people, I, I'll sacrifice the first thing that I see uh, coming out of my house when he returns home. Well, he, uh, God gives them victory over, the, over their enemies, and when this man, Jephthah, returns home, he actually, uh, the first thing that he sees coming out of his doors is his own daughter. And at that point, he doesn't lament and say, oh, what a fool I've been. I, I'm not going to be able to keep this vow. The Bible actually leads us to believe that he actually followed through on his word. And so what we see about this guy, Jephthah, is he's actually trying to bribe God to give him a victory, right? And then he's actually participating in child sacrifice uh, once, once he gets home. Uh, in Samson, we actually uh, see um, a great example of Israel's canonization. Uh, Samson was uh, what's known as a Nazarite in ancient Israel. There's, uh, what are the Nazarites? They were these uh, people that took on this set of vows that mainly had to do with their external appearances, right? And they, they were generally told that you need to be this way from birth. And so there were all these vows that Samson had placed on him that were all these external symbols of how devoted he was supposed to be to God. But what we see as we read through Samson's uh, story is that these outer symbols of his devotion of God are really just a, just a facade, and the inside of Samson is just only concerned about following after his own, uh, what his own selfish desires want. We, uh, we read this interesting uh, statement um, from the mouth of Samson very on uh, in, uh, in his narrative. Uh, Samson actually is telling his father that he wants to marry this Philistine lady who's Israel's enemies, right? And uh, Samson's father says, Samson, isn't there any people among, isn't there any lady among the people of Israel that, that you would be okay with marrying? And uh, Samson says something very interesting to his father. He says, no, Dad, I want you to get this Philistine woman for me, for she is right in my own eyes. And we mentioned this verse previously. We're going to come back to it. At the end of the book of Judges, the people of Israel are said to do what is right in their own eyes. And so what we're seeing is that Samson, this, this final judge in the book of Judges, is actually uh, a symbol, a representative of the nation at whole. They have all these external symbols of how righteous and how good and holy they are. But if you look uh, at what's on the inside, you, all you see is uh, corruption and rebellion against what God is calling them to do. So the people of Israel have become totally Canaanized. Uh, the last, uh, second thing that I want us to look at is God's glory and human weakness in the book of Judges. 
First thing we're going to look at is a guy called uh, Othniel. He's the first judge that we come to. Well, who was, who was the enemy that Othniel faced when he, was, uh, when he was judging the people of Israel? I have it on the screen behind me. I'm not going to take the time to, to read it. I'm just going to tell you it, was this, it wasn't one of the neighboring tribes who was right around the people of Israel. Uh, it was actually um, these, these enemies were actually from the land of Mesopotamia. Right, so this isn't one of the local tribes that Israel has just kicked out of the land. Mesopotamia is this this big nation that we read about in the uh, in the Old Testament, who time after time just takes over the whole world, and yet we read that this judge Othniel from little Israel is able to overthrow their power, and so in that instance, we're able to see how God is glorified and little Israel's weakness over their much larger. Uh, enemies. If we would consider the figure of Gideon in Judges chapter 6 verse 15 um, we read this statement from Gideon which basically says that he is the, the smallest uh, member of his household which is a part of the smallest tribe in Israel and so right away we're given this picture of Gideon as he is a man of weakness right? Um, later on as we read uh, Gideon's story he gets this big army from the people of from the people of God, and God looks at this army and says, "Gideon, your army's too big for me to get the glory for your victory." And God cuts Gideon's <coughs> large army down to a group of three hundred men who defeat an army over a hundred thousand times uh, as big as they are. And so we see God being glorified uh, in Israel's weakness. And the last figure we're going to consider real quickly is just uh, the figure of Samuel. Samuel is not, or not Samuel, uh, Samson. Samson is known for his brute strength. Time after time in his story, we read, uh, we read about how he just manhandles these Philistines and just takes out uh, whole armies of them with like a, uh, with a, what it's called, a, a jawbone of a donkey, right? But interestingly, in Samson's story, we read that God is most glorified in Samson when Samson is at his weakness. Uh, it's too long for us to read again, but uh, eventually Samson uh, is, loses his power when Delilah um, seduces him and cuts his hair, and the Philistines capture him, and they're, they've got him in, in their theater building, and he's uh, being brought out to, uh, to put on display before the Philistines. And uh, Samson actually makes this interesting statement he says let me die with the philistines and then he says um god make me strong one more time so i can take these people out and he pushes over the pillars holding up the house and the bible actually says that uh, samson was able to kill more philistines in his death when he was at his weakness than when he his during his whole life when he was at his strength the last thing that i want us to look at is uh Israel's need for a king. Um, we won't be able to spend a lot of time there, but um, in the perspective of the author of Judges, uh, Israel was in need of a king during the time of the book of Judges. The, uh, the author saw the monarchy as a stabilizing uh, influence within the, within the nation of Israel. And it's interesting uh, in saying that, it's not as if the author of Judges is uh, totally negative on these actual judges that come up in the book of Judges. Um, he actually realizes that some of them are actually very good leaders of the people of Israel. All of them ultimately fail, right? None of them are able to uh, bring about this lasting peace for the nation of Israel. But interestingly enough, 
each one of them is, is able to give the people of Israel God's grace that they need for that moment, right? And so that's also part of the, uh, the book of Judges um, uh, theology of the king is that these uh, judges were put in place in order to give the people of Israel the grace that they needed for that moment, which is another point, uh, important point uh, for us to consider uh, today. So next week we're going to look at the last two books of this half of the course, which is the books of Samuel and the book of Kings. So I hope to see you all there. Uh, let's end with a word of prayer. Lord, uh, 